Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're going to be reading this morning. I'm jumping back into Luke. Um, Chris Puach took us a little bit away for one week, and now I'm jumping back in, although he didn't take us nearly as far as you might think. And... Uh, uh, I'm coming back in time. We're doing Luke 11, 5 to 13 today. It's a famous passage, and uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to chapter 11, verse 5. Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer me from the inside and say, don't bother me. The door's already locked and me and my children have gone up to bed. I can't give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't give up, get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Pause. I don't care how persistent you are. I'm not getting up in the middle of the night <laughs> to give you bread. However, the story is not about me. It's about God. So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and, it will, and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who, re- who asks receives, and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Amen. What a great verse. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before where you're reading a scripture and you've read it before. You're pretty sure you're positive you've read it before. And then you get to a part and you're like, I don't remember that part being there. I've read through the Bible a number of times um, in my life. And um, when I read this passage, I was going through the chap- uh, chapter 11 looking for some possible message topics. And I came to this one. I thought, I've never seen that before. And this is the part that I've never seen. Perhaps you can relate. It's the part about the Holy Spirit. I know the the asking, seeking, knocking verse. I know that, but I didn't remember it ending with the Holy Spirit. The fact that how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And that got me thinking. Because often this is used as, uh, and appropriately so, as a verse that we can go and ask God for things. And that's okay. We can do that. And certainly in the, verse, uh, in the book of Matthew, it leaves off the Holy Spirit. And yet Luke put the Holy Spirit in there. And that made me think, why would he have done that? So I started looking at some commentaries, and the, the general consensus, and this is what I felt too, is that Luke was clarifying something that Mark had written. Wasn't adding to it, but clarifying it. This would have been the original intent of Matthew as well, actually, that the gifts that we're supposed to ask for are not just physical gifts, but they're actually the Holy Spirit. He's the gift that we ask for. And when we receive the Holy Spirit and we're persistent in asking for him, there's a plurality of expressions that we might experience that Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of different ways that we can experience it. Now, To us, this might not even seem very remarkable, because in our churches today, the Holy Spirit is kind of like a token of our salvation. 
You become saved, you get the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we talk to children, we say, ask Jesus to live within your heart, right? That, Bible, that phrase doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, but it's this idea that when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit moves into our life and we become adopted as his children, right? And he lives within us. But what you have to understand is at the time that Matthew and Luke were writing, this was absolutely unbelievable news. This was unbelievable news. It had, never been, uh, it had never been experienced before. In those days, there were three theories, basically, of what, what happened to the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came down and was available at salvation for all believers. Before then, he wasn't. And this was written, really, in an Old Testament time. They were thinking Old Testament when they were, when they were uh, writing and experiencing these stories. So to them they would have thought that the Holy Spirit had either departed from Israel, was only available to the absolute holiest of people, or that the Holy Spirit was kind of reserved for kind of this crazy sect of, uh, of Jews that lived out in the desert called the Essenes. And they were the ones who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were kind of the charismatic church of the community. You know, it's good kind of that they live just on the outskirts, that kind of community. Maybe they have the Holy Spirit. But they certainly didn't realize that the Holy Spirit could be available to everyone should they just ask for it. And not just ask, but keep asking. This was really, really revolutionary. Essentially what Jesus was saying is, like in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit would come on certain people and they would become prophets, you can now ask to be a prophet. This was earth-shattering. But today... What attention is given the Holy Spirit? Today, half our churches, they ignore the Holy Spirit. They see him as little more than a notary stamp on their salvation, right? I gave my life to Jesus. I take the papers. He stamps it. Now I'm adopted. That's the Holy Spirit. And then you have churches that focus on the Holy Spirit, but often they focus on what he can give you, the gifts he gives, as opposed to the fact that he himself is the gift. And so we have this imbalance in many of our churches today. Now, there are many reasons that we should ask for the Holy Spirit. Many, many reasons. Um, and Jesus certainly commanded us to ask for the Holy Spirit. But why should we do it? Well, you might want to ask for the Holy Spirit so that you can get the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are a wonderful thing. Gifts of prophecy, spiritual language, the gift of healing, or even just the fact that when you have the Holy Spirit, you might have the gift of mercy, and, and you just act compassionately in a more profound way than when you didn't have him. Those are all wonderful things. But there is a more primary thing that the Holy Spirit is really about. It's kind of like one of the first or the second things that he does when you become a Christian. And it is that this, exactly this thing that we find in Romans. In Romans it says this, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, Pastor Chris Puhatch, he actually preached on this last week. He talked about the fact that we are adopted as sons and daughters, okay? And he's talked about our good father. It was a relational message. It was really good. Today, I want to talk about a little bit of a different bent. It's the question that we have on the, on the screens. If it's true that we have the assurance of the Spirit when we get saved, then why don't we feel any different? Why don't we feel any different? Or... If we did feel different at one time, why don't we keep that feeling? Why don't I feel saved? That's the question we're going to look at today. 
Why do we doubt it? So I was uh, doing some reflecting this week, and I figured I would start at the most obvious place as to why you might not feel saved. The first reason is because you might not be. Now, this is not true for everyone. In fact, I'd say a lot of my, we know a lot of each other in here. A lot of us are saved. We certainly are. But the truth is, it's at least possible that if you don't feel saved, you should reflect on your own salvation and ask yourself, have I actually ever made that decision to follow Christ? And you see, we make a lot of assumptions, especially in this area. And I don't want to ever make assumptions within this church that just because you come here, that you are necessarily just saved. A lot of us grew up in religious homes, and yet, and we went to church, and we did the summer camp thing, and we did all the things that you would expect a saved person to do, and yet, you might never have actually asked the Lord to be your Savior. Amen. Now, a lot of people will object at this point. They'll say, well, wait a second. I don't have a day and time, but I'm certainly saved. And absolutely, you can be saved without a day and a time. Because that's what Romans 10 verse 9 says. It just simply says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And some of you may have been doing that for as long as you can remember. In fact, my boys who are uh, they are 10 and 15 now. They got saved when they were both four. They probably, they remember it kind of, but they're just growing up as Christians. They won't necessarily have that day as young adults or teenagers or adults. But this is the thing. I was 20 years old. I was 20 years old, and I had done all the things that Christians should do. I had gone on the missions trips. I had been a camp counselor. I had even led people to Jesus. And yet, I did not know if I was saved. So, in October 2000, I decided to call my pastor. I was very, I was quite depressed and unhappy with my life. I decided to call him, and we prayed together on the phone, and I gave my life to Jesus. And you know what? You might say, my mom would say maybe, but Tom, you were saved before that. Look at all the things you did. And I would say, well, yeah, but I didn't know that I was saved. So whether I was saved or not, I was uncertain before October 2000. I was absolutely certain after October 2000. And that means something. So for somebody who has constant doubts, am I saved, am I saved, am I saved, it's not a bad idea to say today's the day. Mark it on your calendar. Say every time the devil tries to make me doubt that I'm actually saved, you remind him of that day. Amen. And then you have a day. It helps. But no, you can grow up and not have a day, but assumptions aren't good. I've made some assumptions. I've been very wrong sometimes. In our, uh, in our middle school program, for example, we've got great kids in there, and uh, you just kind of do church with them on Wednesday nights, especially. We've got 350 of these kids that come. It's so much fun, and they're great kids. A lot of them are your kids. We see them at camp. We know a lot of their story, and yet this fall, I just kind of went to myself, I we haven't had, you know, an altar call for a while where we, where we invite kids to give their lives to Christ. We just haven't done it for a while. And I kind of am hesitant to do them. You know, I don't love altar calls with hands up or come to the front or whatever. So we did it a little different. Um, I presented the gospel, shared some of my testimony, and then I sent them into their cell groups, into their table groups, their cell leader, their table leader. They shared their testimony, and then they gave an invitation there in the small group for whoever wanted to become a Christian. And they were instructed to ask each person, would you like to? Would you like to? A direct question so they could say yes or no to it. It's very important to have that direct question. Well, 16 kids gave their lives to Christ. And that's incredible. 16 kids that you might have assumed were Christians. In fact, some of them were my close, the, the, 
the kids of my close friends who I work closely with. And yet they had been praying for their kids that they would just come to make Jesus their own in some way. It was a huge answer to prayer. We should never assume. So the first reason you might not be saved or you might not feel saved is because you aren't saved. There's another reason that you might not, be, might not feel saved, though, and that's because you walked away. Now, this is a controversial thing in many places. There's a, pardon me, a doctrine called once saved, always saved. Well, it's not really a doctrine, it's a belief. A belief that is taught in many churches that if you make a decision once in your life, that decision is good for all time. And I'm telling you that that particular belief is very dangerous and I believe unbiblical. It's very dangerous. And we know from scriptures such as 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, uh, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, verse 9, Hebrews 10, verse 26 to 31. The most obvious, I think, is James, verse 5, 19 to 20. That one says, if any among you, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and tell, uh, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will cover a multitude of sins and save his life from death. Well, how can, how can one among us turn away and be turned back to the faith if they didn't have faith in the first place. No, it's obvious that you can actually lose your faith if you choose to. It can't happen by accident. You can't accidentally fall, you know, out of a relation. No, no more easier, no more easily than you could fall out of a, a marriage. But you can grow cold in a marriage and eventually divorce. You can absolutely do that. And God honors the willful choices of his creatures. I was trying to think about it uh, this week. How can I explain this? And, a, and an illustration came to me. So this is a picture of me in Bible school. doesn't look like I'm in Bible school, but I was. This was my favorite classroom. It was up in the Austrian Alps. And uh, when I was 18 years old, eight days after I graduated, I left for Austria to Tarnhof, which is a Capenry school. And I spent um, all summer and all fall there. And in summer, we did a program called Upward Bound. It was basically up in the mountains most of the time. And our classroom was the mountains. It was an incredible place to learn. And we spent the first, you know, third of the summer learning down at, on, in the base, you know, at the school. And then the rest of the summer, we were up doing tours. And um, one thing they would do is uh, we would be hiking in the mountains, and everybody would eventually be the LOD the leader of the day. And when you were LOD, you were the one who got to carry the map and the compass. In fact, on that day, you were the only one who was allowed to have a watch. No one else was even allowed to have a watch. You were the only one who knew what time it was at any given point, and there's sorts of weird reasons for that. But we would hike through the mountains, and if you've ever gone hiking in the mountains, you know that you can get to these vast, basically mountain deserts with scree fields and gravel and all this. It can be really hard to see a trail. Very, very hard to see a trail. So what somebody in their kindness did for all the hikers who would try to hike through the mountains is they painted red circles on rocks as markers that you were on the right path. So between your compass, your map, and the red circles, you would hopefully be following the right path. Except there was a problem. All the trails were marked with red circles. Every last one of them. So if you wanted to go for a hike and you didn't care where you ended up, no problem. Go follow some red circles. But if you had a destination in mind, you had better be very careful that you're not only following the circles, but you're looking at your map and your compass. Because if you make a wrong turn and you start, oh, there's another red circle. I can just keep going in that direction. If you do that, you're in trouble. And we had this one guy. His name was Wes. Jesus mercifully spared me from being in his group. He was a leader. 
my leader was, his name was Richie. He was from uh, New Zealand. His, his name was Richie, and he always put on her sweeter in the morning. Spoke weird, weirdly. <laughs> Took a long time to understand him. He wasn't that much older than me, but he feel, felt a lot older. And uh, he was our leader. And, but Wes was an, an evil, sort of maniacal leader. And he, there was this story that circulated about him, about this one group that had been hiking and hiking and hiking, and they just, something wasn't making sense. And now it was dusk, and the sun was going down, and they didn't know where they were. They were looking at the map, looking at the compass, and they, Wes, where are we? And he said, well, you're approximately 13 kilometers from where you should, from where you should be. 13 kilometers at dusk. That means you have to backtrack 13 kilometers and then find the right trail and go. Our, our uh, leader, uh, Ricci, he said, don't worry, guys. You're not going to get 13 kilometers off track with me. He says, I, even if you're leader of the day, I am stopping you because I don't feel like coming back that far. So Wes was kind of, kind of let people find their own mistakes. Ricci was a little kinder. But this is the thing. You can do a lot of the right things and yet slowly get off the right path. Amen. And it's not that, it's, again, it's not like you can accidentally walk away from Jesus. But you know what happens? You make a little compromise here, you lose the path. You make a little compromise there, it looks right, but you're starting to get farther off the real path. And eventually what happens is if you're 13 kilometers from where you should be, it's really easy to just go back to base camp. Just give up. It's too much work to try and backtrack and go back to the place where I went off. And you know, when we believe things like this once saved, always saved, it can put us on a dangerous path. It can move us off from where we're safe. It's just not safe. See, if you think that a four-year-old making a decision to follow Christ, if that's the quality of your faith when you're a 40-year-old man, you're kidding yourself. In the same way that if you got married at 21 like I did, and I've been married for 17 years this year, if my, the quality of my love towards my wife looks the same as it did 17 years ago, there's something wrong with my marriage. The quality of our love has to increase. It has to. If it doesn't, we run the risk of growing apart. Because the love of a 20-year-old or a 21-year-old does not sustain you through some of the hard stuff that comes later. And you know that. Same is true for our relationship with Jesus. So you have two reasons why you might not be saved because you aren't. I mean, two reasons why you might not be, because you haven't asked Jesus into your heart and because you might have walked away, but there's another reason that you might just not feel saved. It might be very simple, actually. It might be simply that you doubt. You think you had that decision, it felt real at a time, it doesn't feel real anymore. You've, you, you made a decision at a high school camp, it was an emotional decision. Does that emotional decision actually carry weight now that you're facing intellectual questions? And you begin to doubt. And this is why we need the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we need to keep asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm willing to guess that there are few Christians that have not faced doubts in their walk with Jesus. How does the Bible talk about doubt? Well, the Bible uses four, well, five images to talk about doubt. The first is this. The first is hesitation. It said in Matthew 28, verse 17, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead, and now in his resurrected body, he's appearing to people. And they said when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. That word there in the Greek, doubt, is distazo. 
It means just hesitated. I thought it was him, but I wasn't sure. Some were so overwhelmed with worship, boom, they fell on their face and worshiped. The others, they went, ah, I want to, but I can't quite. I'm just not sure. It would have been scary, let's be honest. Again, put yourself in their shoes. They all thought he was a ghost, and who wouldn't, right? People who are dead and then appear usually are ghosts. <laughs> I don't blame them for the way they reacted, but they hesitated. You know what this is like, too. The Holy Spirit says something to you, and you hesitate. Should I really do it? Shouldn't I do it? Uh, one of the questions that came up at the Truth Conference was, because the conversation turned a little bit towards talking to other people about our faith. So it wasn't just about knowing our faith is true, but how do I tell other people about it? And one of the questions was, how do you know it's a good time to tell someone about Jesus? And I told them there were two times in my life, uh, I've, known, I've told many people about Jesus, but there's two times in particular where I knew without a shadow of a doubt that somebody was about to get saved. I just knew it. One happened to be a family member. One day we went there for a bonfire, and I knew before we went there, this is going to be the night that this person gives their heart to Christ. I knew it. And when the I was just like a, I was just like a, you know, a dog waiting for the opportunity. When is it going to come? When is it going to come? And when it came, I was inside and witnessing, and 45 minutes later, I had led him to Christ. You know, I just knew it. And I was like, yeah, it felt so good. And then there was another time, though, when I was 18. No, not 18, pardon me. The guy was 18. I was 20. This was just shortly, it was the same month, October 2000, that I gave my heart to Jesus. And I'd been at this worship night in, in Niverville. And uh, my buddy had been there, Joe. And he was there for all the wrong reasons. He was just there because he was social. He wasn't there to worship. He wasn't a Christian. And that night after the worship time, uh, I got up on stage, and I led one special number with a friend of mine. And people didn't realize it, but I had just given my, my life to Christ fully. I was singing with a different kind of assurance of salvation, let me tell you. I got off, and I looked across the room, and my buddy Joe was looking right at me. And the actual phrase that went through my mind was, oh, crud, he wants to talk. <laughs> I quote myself, <laughs> oh, shoot. And he did. And I presented the God. Well, I'll tell you what he said to me. He said, you know, Tom, uh, he said, half the people in this room are going to be in a party uh, with me in two hours getting just as drunk. He said, but when you sang, you had something different. I want what you have. That's what he said. So I presented the gospel to him. Two days later, he came to my house on Halloween night. He had to go trick-or-treating first. Then he came to my house, and I led him to Jesus. And I just knew. I just knew doesn't always happen that way. Later, as I grew up, you know, you get that prompting. You just know you act on it. And do you know what? I'd rather act on it and nine times out of ten be wrong than ten times out of ten not act on it. Amen. Right? Amen. There's very few people, if we're kind of compassionate, by the way, who get furious and irate and write us off as friends if we invite them into eternal salvation. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's atheists out there who say, there's one atheist I'm thinking of, I've heard an interview with him, he said, you know, I'm not offended if somebody tells me about Jesus, it means you don't want me to go to hell, I kind of appreciate that. I don't believe in Jesus or hell, but I appreciate that you care that much to tell me. Right? But we hesitate. Hesitation is doubt. If you didn't doubt, you wouldn't hesitate. If you knew you could make that jump, you would go for it, Right? But we've all seen the videos of the people who run to the edge and hesitate. 
bad things follow. <laughs> this is the same word also that was used um, when Peter walked out on the water and he was walking in faith and then he would lose, he would hesitate, he would doubt. And what would happen? He would sink. And Jesus would reach down and say, ah, my child, look at me, right? That's the first kind of doubt. Then you have another kind of doubt. It means it's indecision. Jesus answered them, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, this is called diacrino. It means indecision or at odds with or to take issue with. If you do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, he had just cursed it and killed it, you will tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will be done. But he says, you can't doubt in those moments. If you know for sure that God has asked you to do something, now, keep in mind, we often think God, well, we can sometimes think that God's asked us to do something when he, when he actually hasn't. And then we get all disappointed, you know, when he doesn't do what he hasn't asked us to do. Didn't quite make sense the way I said it, but you get my point. But the, this is the thing. He says, if I do actually ask you to do something like kill a fig tree, you know, don't doubt. Just command it, and it will happen, okay? So... Indecision is another one. <clears throat> then we have this thing called into minds. James 4 verse 8 talks about double-minded people. If you're double-minded, it means that you want to have sort of one foot in the, in, in the world, in the flesh, and one foot in the kingdom. You want to be saved. You want the, all the uh, benefits of being a Christian, but you don't want to leave all the benefits of being a sinner because it's fun to be a sinner. It is. And so you want to keep both. I tell you something, if you try to do both, one is going to win in the end. You can't live here for long. How are you going to obey Jesus when he says, do this, when you're just in love with sin? It's very hard. It's called being in two minds. And then there's two more examples that the Bible uses, two images that are helpful. One is dark and one is stormy. You understand that a doubt is like a storm, right? In fact, in James, again, it says, uh, if, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives all to, without generously to all without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, because the doubter is like the stormy seas tossed and driven by the winds. A doubter can't make up his mind. Doubt puts us into a storm. We can't, don't know which way to turn, right? Then there's this other one of darkness. I have another story about darkness. Now, if you're a middle school or have been a middle school student under me, you know this story. You know exactly where I'm going. I might have even told some of you at this, in, when I've been preaching, I don't remember. But when I was in Austria, what happened was, what would happen is we weren't allowed to know in the morning what we were doing in the afternoon. No one wore watches except for the leader. You, you never knew. It was a trust exercise. Trust, building trust with students or controlling with the leaders. I'm not sure what it was exactly, but one or the other. We weren't allowed. And so we would go around, and we didn't know in the morning what we'd do in the afternoon. We never knew when we'd come out of the mountains when our tour would be over. We wouldn't know. We would try to figure out how many days we'd be up in the mountains by how much, how much rye bread we had been given. We could kind of guess, okay, we have this much rations, that must be three days. And then some, somebody would do a food drop in the mountains on some glacier, and oh, come on now, we'd pick up and keep going, right? We thought we were going home. Well, I knew a little bit about what was coming because I had talked to former students. So I knew that we were going to, for example, have to swim a, swim a glacier stream, a rapid, rapids. We're going to have to swim across that. I knew we were going to have to belay and, and mountain climb, go to the top of the Dachstein Mountain. I knew all this stuff. And I knew that there was a horrible experience awaiting me. It was so terrible, just the thought of it, that it almost kept me from going to Bible school. And it was the, I knew that eventually we were going to sleep in a cave. Now, I'm absolutely terrified of small spaces. I mean, you don't understand the terror that it put into me. I've dealt with it a lot. 
Um, I didn't deal with it the way Donovan did. Donovan is, uh, Pastor Donovan was very claustrophobic. This is a funny story. So one time he wanted to try and deal with his claustrophobia, so he had Kendra zip him up in a hockey bag. <laughs> but as soon as he was zipped up, he absolutely lost his ever-living mind and started panicking and screaming, open it up, open it up, and she thought he was joking. So she said, no, I'm not going to do it. And she pretended to walk up the stairs and made noise, and he thought that she had left him there. And then when she opened it finally, and he was white and sweating, she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Anyways, I didn't deal with my, I haven't dealt with my, my claustrophobia that way, but that's a good story. Anyways, on the very first day of the very first tour at noon, we sat down for lunch, and they said, guess what, guys, tonight we're sleeping in a cave. And this 18-year-old young adult burst into the wettest, grossest cry you've ever seen in your life. I was bawling my, uh, my face off like I was beside myself. And uh, Richie, this poor, you know, he's probably 22 or something, he's like, got this 18-year-old boy crying, he's like, eh. So one of the female leaders came and consoled me. She was a little more compassionate. I liked her best. And, uh, but still, we had to, uh, what were you going to do? What are you going to do, right? You've got to go along. And we had five more miles to hike through the mountain before we got to the cave. It was like the green mile, walking to my death. It was a horrible experience. It was just awful. And I cried all the way. It was horrible. And we got to the cave, and you had to then climb up five meters, no ropes. You just have to climb. And like, first, they, they almost kill you by putting you in the cave, then they're going to kill you in the cave. It's a horrible thing. And then, in their wisdom, they told us stories about the cave. Things like, this was on June 9th. I remember very, very well what day it was. It was June 9th, and, uh, and June 10th is the day that I came out. And... Uh, but on June 10th, they said, in spring, we, they had brought another team there. And they said, when we came in, when everybody was in the, the mouth of the cave, they said, um, an avalanche went past the, the opening. Well, that's not comforting. <laughs> and they said, so we couldn't go back down into the cave because we were worried that another avalanche would come and trap us. Well, this is horrible. Except that it might get me out of going in the cave. So I thought, well, I don't know now. And then they said, so what they, and then what they did was they sent the... Um, the, the team went out one at a time. They said, because if another avalanche came, we didn't want to lose the whole group. <laughs> so, scary. Those are the ones you don't tell mom about while they're happening. You don't write home about that. You tell her when you're home. And then they said, now if you're very quiet in the cave, sometimes you can hear rocks falling. What is the matter with you people? <laughs> Anyways, we suited up. It's cold in the cave. It wasn't a pretty cave. It was a rocky one. Um, and it was zero degrees in the cave, so you, you couldn't use a flashlight, the batteries would just drain. So we used actual flames. Have a little canister with some rocks in there, you'd shake it up with water, it would produce a gas, it would come up a pipe, and then you'd light a little flame here on a little reflect, reflector on your hard hat. Only there weren't enough, so I didn't get one. <laughs> and then I was trying to decide, where am I going to go? In the front of the line or the back of the line? Well, the back of the line, because that's closer to the entrance, right? Hans Peter was our director. He was leading the team. He said, Tom, you should come to the front with me. It was one of the only times he was ever compassionate with me. And uh, he, was, he was a German man, you know, not exactly emotionally in tune, right? But, <laughs> but, but he, he brought me to the front of the line. I said, I don't know if I want to be at the front. I want to be in the back. He said, Wes is in the back. I'm at the front. <laughs> so I went in the front went through this, and there was this horrible place called the wind tunnel. All the wind would funnel through this little tunnel, and it was either rushing into the cave or out of the cave, depending on the air pressure outside. 
okay? And at that point where it's rushing in or rushing out, what happens? All the flames go out. So now you're in the dark. And uh, when I looked at this hole, I said, and I'm sorry, but I said, Hans Peter, who is the fattest person who's ever gone through that? Because I just needed to know. And he says, you'll be fine. And, uh, but when I crawled through, I could feel mountains on all sides of me. You could feel it on your back, on your side, on your stomach. You were crawling, army crawling. It was horrible. Two kilometers of mountain above you, five meters of, of tunnel to go. It, was, it just about killed me. It's horrible. Then you get to the other side. We only went 300 meters into this cave. It goes for 12 kilometers. Hans Peter actually discovered the cave as a teenager, I think, with a buddy. They explored it for 12 kilometers, measuring it out and mapping it. They never found the end. But we couldn't go that far. We only went 300 meters in. It took us three hours to get that far. And we ended up in a cavern, finally in an opening that was 40 feet high. And there was a waterfall in one of the corners, and it was beautiful. Uh, Hans Peter, he shot a... Um, a flare up to the top, and it lit up the whole cavern. It was gorgeous, and we had supper in there, and then he preached a message. But before he preached a message, he said, I'm going to preach this one in the dark. Oh, good night. So, and you guys, you know that. You know that you've never experienced dark until you've experienced that dark. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, right? You can't see anything. And um, uh, one of the leaders came and held me, actually, the whole time. You know, people always laugh there. That's the endearing part of the story. It's <laughs> the nice part. She held me. She's like, it's okay, Tom. It's okay. It's okay. The nice one did. It was so dark that when the lights finally did come on, we realized that one of my friends, Jonathan, had fainted. <laughs> it was so dark, he got disoriented and fainted, but no one knew. It was dark. <laughs> oh, just sitting there. What did I miss? <laughs> But all the lights went out, and this is what Hans Peter preached. He said, without a light in this cave, you're dead. There's no way out. You cannot hope to find your way out of this cave without a light. He said, there's chasms you walked across. There were. There were rope, uh, rope bridges that they had extended. We uh, belayed and rock climbed up and down rock faces right in the, in the cave. He said, how are you going to find your way out without a light? There's no way you can go on. He says, that's what it's like to live in spiritual darkness. Without a light, you will never find your way out of spiritual darkness. You cannot do it. And you know when he lit that one light? It, the, the flames were literally probably a centimeter and a half tall, very small. It burned our eyes. It, oh, so bright, you know? But that is not, that's also a picture of spiritual doubt. It's lonely. It's dark. It's scary. It feels dangerous. You don't know the way. You ask for a light. You beg for it. The light is the Holy Spirit. But that is a picture. That is a picture that the Bible uses. Now, if it's dark and stormy, you're in a real, real bind. It's a terrifying place to be. And you know what? For a lot of people, it's terrifying to be in doubt. It's absolutely terrifying. A Christian shouldn't doubt. A Christian should have assurance. That's what the Bible says, right? So it's scary. And the Bible takes all these images and it summarizes into two categories of doubt. You can have doubts in your, in your heart and in your head, in your minds. You can have doubts that are what they call existential doubts. Those are doubts about your experience, relationships, love, emotional. They're feelings. 
You can doubt at that place. You can say, does Jesus really love me? That's what you can say. Or you can have intellectual doubts where you, where you, where you think, you, where you know you've had experiences with him, but now you're coming up against this Bible and you're coming against skeptics and they're saying, you can't trust this book. They're saying, you can't trust it. And so now do I trust it? It's an intellectual activity. Can I trust the book or can I not trust it? That's an intellectual doubt. And the way you answer these doubts is really critical. It's really critical because you can't answer an intellectual doubt with an emotional answer. It doesn't work. Let me give you an example. Let's say a, a student came to me and said, Pastor Tom, I've got a question that's been really bothering me. Okay. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I can launch into an intellectual explanation for that. There's rules of logic. There's a per perfectly logical explanation for why God, who is loving, has allowed evil in the world. Perfectly logical. It's airtight. I can take you through the argument if you want. Okay? I can also give you a theological argument about sin and evil and the depravity of man. I can give you a theological argument there. But that's not what they were asking. They asked the question, but do you know what they really meant? Why did my dad get diagnosed with cancer? Why do bad things happen to me? Well, that's a very different question. You see, that's an emotional question. And if somebody is wrestling with an emotional question to give them the intellectual answer, the logical answer, that's almost cruel. You don't go to funerals and give logic. You give, go to funerals and you give care, support. It might come eventually that you give that kind of answer, but you don't at first. So the same is true for doubts. Now, you might wonder, why is it like this? Why do we tend to doubt in these two ways? Well, there's a reason. William Lane Craig, he's a brilliant philosopher. If you've never seen one of his debates, you need to look it up on YouTube. He's brilliant. William Lane Craig is from the United States. He said that there are two equally viable ways to come to believe in Jesus Christ. One, he says, is through the objective evidence of Christianity. That means truth statements. You can sit down and study the truth of Christianity. You can compare to the, the truth or the fallacy of other religions. You can compare the truth of this book to a different holy book. You can compare these things and come to a conclusion that Christianity is true. You can absolutely do that. He says that's the first way you can come to Christ. The other way, though, is through an existential experience that is an experience or a relationship. He says both are valid. Now that's really incredible for a philosopher to say. That's incredible for a philosopher to say. But because we can come to Jesus in these two different ways, and often it's a mix of both, but because we can come in two different ways, it's possible that we doubt in one of the categories and not the other. And yet it feels very scary in both. So how do we actually deal with doubt? There's a number of things I want to say about dealing with doubt. The first thing that I want you to know about dealing with doubt is that you're in good, uh, good company. You're in good company. The heroes of the Bible that we admire dealt with doubt. Um, you look at Abraham and Sarah, David. David, for goodness sakes, in one psalm, he wrote, in Psalm 9, he says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in their time of need. Oh, that's such a nice thought, eh? You know what Psalm 10 says? Tom, psalm 10, verse 1 says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? <laughs> he dealt with doubt. 
There were times when he felt he was in a refuge, other times when he felt he wasn't. Then you have Jeremiah, Job, Elijah was my favorite. But there weren't just Bible characters who dealt with doubt. We have contemporary examples as well of godly men who dealt with doubt. I'm going to read you a a portion of a letter that was written by a, a contemporary scholar, one that you'll all know. Listen to this, though. He says, I think the trouble with me, and he was writing this as a letter to his friend. I think the trouble with me is a lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convinced me of God's existence, but the irrational deadweight of my old skeptical habits and the spirit of the age and the cares of the day, they steal away my lively feeling of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. That was C.S. Lewis. Brilliant man. Writing his friend about doubts. That's remarkable. It gives me hope and a little bit of discouragement at the same time. Because I don't know if I appreciate being in the category of great people who also doubted. It doesn't always give me, you know, it doesn't always give me a lot of comfort. But there is a perspective to this thing. The second, uh, yeah, there is a perspective to this thing. So the second thing, uh, or the the next thing I want to say is then, how do we deal, let's talk about some specific doubts. How do we deal with doubts of the heart? Those are the personal, experiential, or relational kinds of doubts. Uh, You know, when we talk about this stuff, this is the stuff that makes up our very existence, right? It's very important. It's It's the feeling part of our lives, and the feeling part of your lives is a very powerful and very important part of your life. And um, it is possible upon conversion, and even afterwards, and even beforehand sometimes, to have an experience with the Holy Spirit that you just know was Him. And you know, skeptics really don't like this. They always skewer uh, William Lane Craig in, in, uh, in debates when he brings it up. But he says, it is perfectly acceptable that I had an experience with God. Why should I doubt anything else? Or why should I expect anything else? He says, uh, he said that when he became a Christian, he said, what I know for sure is that there was a presence in my life that wasn't there before. That's how he, it's very hard to describe, he said. Many people say they feel something when they worship or after a set free retreat. I had a friend, a neighbor, who went to a Franklin Graham uh, crusade, gave her life to Jesus. When she came back, she described it. She says, it's like I feel full, like I've had a heavy meal. It feels so good. But all these experiences, right? Charles Finney described his conversion as experienced waves and waves of liquid love. I experienced the assurance of salvation that was profound. It just absolutely stuck with me. It's amazing. But where does that feeling go? What do you do when the experience with the Holy Spirit, you know, sort of dries up? Well, one thing you need to realize is that you can go to certain places and have an experience with the Holy Spirit. And if you had an experience with the Holy Spirit and it's not happening anymore, it's completely reasonable to say, how can I go back to the place where I experienced him last? Where can I, how can I experience that again? So, for example, I went on many missions trips, and uh, I know that I experienced God on missions trips, so sometimes I long to go on, another's, on another missions trip. You know, for me, uh, I've had a dry season. Now, I don't mean dry in terms of I'm questioning my faith and all that, but I just haven't had a real deep experience with God for, for a while, and I've been longing for it. I've been absolutely longing for it. So, This year, during the month of prayer and fasting, I asked the Lord, I said, Jesus, one of my requests is that my faith would increase exponentially 
through an experience with you. You know, two weeks ago, I was doing my devotions. Two times in one week this happened. I go to the prayer room often to do my devotions whenever I can. You know why? It's the Holy Spirit is there. It just is. It's not distracting. He's just there. You can feel him when you walk in. I love doing my devotions in there. And I was sitting there, and I had done my memory work already, and I had gone through my intercession list. And I was sitting there all at once, and I was just listening to I put on my own worship music. I like to wear headphones in there, so I'm less distracted yet. And all of a sudden, in my mind, it's like, I was just brought into the presence of God. It was incredible. I could never possibly describe it for you. It was just incredible. Like that. Two times in one week. It was so profound. Now, I had still a presence of mind because it was so profound that I went, like that. And then I opened my, my eyes to see if anybody had heard me. It was very quiet in the prayer room. But I actually gasped when it happened. And then I said, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer. You go to the place where you have had an experience with God before. But this is the key. We're not chasing the experience. We're chasing the one who gives us the experience. Very important. We don't chase an experience. We chase the one who has an experience. Look, you can have an experience with Jesus at the U of W. You can. But I'm willing to bet it's going to be easier here. That's a dark place. It's a really dark place spiritually. I went to school there. I know that. So there is something true about being in certain places and experiencing the Holy Spirit. There is something true about that. And there's nothing wrong with going after that and looking at it and saying, Jesus, where are you? And can I have that again? There's nothing wrong with it. So where can you go? I have some suggestions. Because this church believes that you should be given an opportunity to experience the Holy Spirit. That's what this church believes. So we provide opportunities for it. You can go to the Hearing God course. You'll experience the prophetic, both for yourself hearing and also in giving, hearing for someone else. It starts on March 22nd. You need to sign up for it. It's an amazing course. If you haven't gone for a few years, you feel a little bit dry in your faith, go again. It's totally fine. Go again. Go to where you heard God the last time. Learn how to hear him again. Learn the principles of it. Go to an Empower Ministers retreat. That happens on March 9th. That's coming right up. You will have an experience with the Holy Spirit there. You can go expecting it. And then you could just simply come to the prayer summit. You know what? I, I, don't, I don't understand necessarily always what it is, but our worship here on Sunday mornings is really good. My uncle, George, he came here yesterday to hear me preach, and he said afterwards, oh, I just love the worship there. I love the worship they attend in Winnipeg. And uh, the worship here on a Sunday morning is incredible. But you know the worship at a prayer summit? It's just so incredible. And if you've never been to a prayer summit, you should really come to experience it, if, if only for the worship. Come and look at what happens when people pray to the quality of their worship. But if you have doubts of the heart, you need to go to the place where Jesus is. And you can't give up. You can't give up when it feels like it's not really happening. You just have to stick with it. Then how do we deal with the doubts of the mind? Well, First of all, you still need the Holy Spirit to dealt with the, deal with the doubts of the mind. It says in John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth, the truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. You see, you cannot understand truth without the Holy Spirit. So if you think that, you, that the Holy Spirit is only needed for the experience, you're wrong. You know, there are secular 
theological departments and universities that are filled with scholars who know their Bibles better than a lot of us do. They know their Bibles backwards and forwards. They are not Christians. They are atheists. Why? They do not have the spirit of truth unlocking the truth of Scripture for them. You can read that book a thousand times. If you don't have the Holy Spirit unlocking it for you, it will make absolutely no sense. So even if you're dealing with doubts of the mind, you still need the Holy Spirit. You still need the gift of the Spirit. And now, very often when people come to me with doubts like this, it's a question like a truth statement. Like, how do I know that this is true about God? Or how do I know that, you know, why is there evil in the world? Or stuff like that. Um, today, I, there's lots of books I can give you if you have questions like that. If you doubt on that, on, in that way, I can give you lots of books. But I want to show you a different way that I've been, I've been reading about lately. And that is to attack doubts, intellectual doubts, with promises. God gives us all sorts of promises in the Bible. For example, he, we know this one, forgiveness and victory over sin. That's in Romans 8, verse 1. Then it says that he also hears our prayers. That's a promise that he gives us in 1 John 5, verse 14. And there's lots of promises that he gives us, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit, security for our souls, resurrection from the dead, safety through judgment, eternal life in heaven. These are all promises that he gives us, right? But this is the thing about a promise in Scripture. If it's there... Why is it so hard to believe it? Now, I want you to think with me because we're talking about intellectual doubts. When I read a promise in the Bible, I ask myself something. You know, and okay, I read a promise in the Bible and I go, oh, I don't know if I believe that. Oh dear, do I believe that or not? You have to ask yourself, on what basis do you doubt a promise of God? Because you're a logical person, you're an intellectual person having an intellectual doubt, you must have a basis for doubting one of the promises of God. And if you do not have a good reason to doubt that promise, it will be arrogant not to believe it. Amen. And you know what I find with a lot of people is they say they're interested in the truth, but when they come up against the truth that feels a little odd to them, for example, eternal security. Well, I don't know if I could believe that. Why? No, no, don't tell me why you don't, like, don't tell me you don't believe it. Tell me why you don't believe it. Give me the basis for why you don't believe it. Because if you don't have a logical, reasonable explanation as to why you don't believe it, you're arrogant. That's called arrogance. It's not humble. You should be a humble seeker of the truth. You should go where the truth leads. That's what we say. So this has been really good. You know, you look at a, a passage like um, Joshua 1 verse 9. In that passage, God says, I'm with you wherever you go. You might say, I don't believe that he's with me wherever he goes, but you know that makes no difference whether you believe it or not. He is with you wherever you go. It makes no difference. And so sometimes we need to give intellectual assent to a truth. We just need to intellectually agree with it. Do you know at times, because, and I'll be honest with you, it's the stuff of the supernatural that sometimes gets me. Heaven is so far out of my reality that it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. The end times is so far out of my reality that I have trouble wrapping my, hands around it, or my head around it sometimes. So that's often where I ask God the questions. And I remember one time I was driving in my car. I exactly remember where I was because I was passing the dump. And, uh, and I was having this internal dialogue. And often my dialogue sounds like a debate. And I'm going through reasons that I, what I believe and asking God, how, like that is just so strange. You know, and, uh, and it doesn't bother me to have these conversations with God where I'm questioning, you know, certain things and coming to try and come to terms with it or whatnot. But you know what I do in those moments often? I mean, I don't have those moments often, but when I do have them, this is what I do. 
Say, well, God, the alternative sucks, so I'm sticking with you. <laughs> like, really, if I think about the alternative to what you're saying, which I have no reason to doubt, the alternatives are awful. Awful. They, they make far less sense than this. I'm going with what makes the most sense, even if it doesn't make all sense. It's an intellectual decision. It's not a feeling decision. I feel very little, actually, when I'm saying it. <laughs> but you have to do it. You know, some people, I think, they don't like, they don't like claiming the promises of the Bible because they don't like to obey the commands of a Bible. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have the promises of the Bible without understanding that there's also commands in the Bible. Here's a question you should be asking yourself. So if all this is true, and the gift of the Holy Spirit can address both our intellectual and emotional doubts, is it possible that one of the reasons I doubt, or I deal with doubt, is that I need a refilling of the Holy Spirit? And you know what the answer is? Yes. Scripture assures us that when we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. But it's possible that without some maintenance, the presence of the Holy Spirit can diminish in your life. And this is true for any relationship. You know that. It's true for any relationship. In Leviticus 6, verse 13, I really like this passage. It was a command given to the priests of the temple to never allow the fire to go out on the altar. Always keep the fire burning and hot. Always keep it running. Well, there is a new temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's my body, which makes me think that the altar is somewhere in there, symbolically. And I have to do the work of keeping the altar burning. I have to keep adding fuel to that fire, and the fuel is the Holy Spirit. You might think of the Holy Spirit being filled with the Holy Spirit as pouring gas on the fire. Things happen, right? In Acts 4, verse 8, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. But this was not the first time that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit the first time that we know of at Pentecost. And it was profound. I mean, there it was literally flames of fire. It was flames of fire and speaking in tongues and magnificent, miraculous salvations. It was an incredible time, right? And then just a few chapters later, what does it say? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that so? Pastor Ray likes to say, because he leaked. <laughs> You can diminish the presence of the Holy Spirit. It won't go out entirely. You won't lose your salvation like that. No, no, no. But very often, we don't do the things that keep that fire stoked. We don't keep it stoked. And if that's the case, you should ask that the Holy Spirit would fill you again. I've been asking that very regularly again. Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Finally, I think that one of the reasons that many people don't deal with their doubts is that they don't actually feel desperate enough about them. You know that? Well, I don't really believe in the filling of the Holy Spirit, so I don't want to ask for that. Well, then maybe you're not desperate enough. I don't like that feeling of doubt. I don't like it at all. So I deal with it. I deal with it. You know, the, uh, in your marriage, if you noticed over the years that it's growing cooler and cooler and cooler and cooler in your marriage, at what point would you become desperate enough to say, I'll do whatever it takes to renew my vows and add heat back to the fire? At what time would you get desperate enough? There would come a time, I would hope. I would hope that. The same is true for your relationship with God, though. Luke 10, 11, that story at the beginning of the message, it's talking about a person who's knocking with desperation. 
I mean, desperation. He's not giving up. He is persistent. He's getting his friend up in the middle of the night. And do you know what? The story isn't about the friend who gets up. It's about the one who keeps knocking. And God always answers the door. Always. But are you going to be like Jacob, who holds on to the ankle of the angel and says, I will not let go until you bless me? Will you be like that, persistent in your faith? Are you desperate enough for the good gift that Christ gives to all who remain in a posture of seeking and asking? Because that gift is the Holy Spirit. I have a weekly challenge for you. This week, I'd encourage you to assess your doubts. Are they intellectual or relational? Are they experiential? How do, where do they fall? If they're relational and experiential, then attend a prayer summit on Tuesday. Sign up for Empower, the Hearing God course. Experience. Put yourself in a place to experience the Holy Spirit again. Now, if they're intellectual, start a running list of promises that you come across in your devotions, and every time you come across a promise, you underline it and you ask, do I have any reason to doubt this? And if you have a reason to not believe that promise, then you start working on that. How can I deal with this? What do I need to do? What is the next step? Or pick up a good book on apologetics. Every time I read a book on apologetics, I just, my faith just grows. It's hard to doubt God when you have such wonderful arguments for his existence. It's really hard. And then finally, ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you don't leave us alone in our darkness and our storms. And God, uh, we, know, we might know that you don't leave us alone, but it often feels like it. So I pray for my church family, that for those who are in storms and darkness right now, that you would give them a little sliver of light. And God, we're coming into times when the pressure is only going to increase on us. So, Father, we need to know with certainty what we believe and why we believe it. God, I pray that this church would be a confident church, that we would not shy away from the difficult challenges to the truth, but, God, that we would stand firm and that we would have the kind of minds that would be able to answer those questions and the kinds of lives and experiences that demonstrate what we believe. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.